0: Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We have spent much of the book of Revelation talking about how Jesus is taking back that which is rightfully his. Well, by chapter 20, the king has arrived and his kingdom is glorious. That's what we studied about last week but what we're going to find today as we pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 20 is that some of those who are born during those thousand years will not think Jesus' reign is so glorious. And when those thousand years up, Satan will be loosed, and those who think they could do better without Jesus will have their opportunity to reject Him. And when we see God's final judgment as a result of this upon Satan and anyone else who rebels, it will then usher in the beginning of eternity. So, Chapter 20, we begin in verse 7. It says, And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and he shall go out and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded, compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here we see the end of our enemy, the enemy of our souls. Uh, But before we get to the end of our enemy, we have to get to his loosing out of the bottomless pit. Now, we talked about uh, last week the you know, the millennial reign of Christ and how glorious that will be. And we looked at those details and I, I realize it seems pretty quick because now we're gonna we're gonna we spent, you know, months and months and months in Revelation six through nineteen covering a seven year period, right? And now we get the thousand years in, you know, in, in one Sunday. <laughs> you know. And, and and depending upon your view on chapters twenty-one and twenty-two, there's more uh, to the millennial kingdom, uh, possibly. But the idea here is is yes, we have more details on the seven years than we do on the thousand years years. Uh, and, and yet... Um, you know, as we're moving forward, we understand it was glorious. We understand Jesus's kingdom is perfect. We're longing for it. We're looking for it. But at the end of those thousand years, it tells us that Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. Satan's last-ditch attempt to thwart God—a um, silly attempt because none, no attempts that he can have can actually thwart God. Uh, Satan cannot succeed in this endeavor. However, God allows it because it has a purpose in allowing Satan to be loosed. God is going to, through this loosing and what occurs, prove once and for all that even in the most ideal conditions, humanity still will choose to rebel against him. You know when we think of of life, you know today, we face many challenges. As a Christian, if you're a believer here today, you know you face many sources of temptation. We face you know, we can kind of categorize them into three different categories, you know. We we experience temptation from our enemy, the enemy forces, right? These This is an external, you know, temptation that we experience. We experience temptation from the world, right? You know, the world has a way of thinking that is apart from the Lord, and it's constantly trying to squish us into that mold, right? Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The idea of conformed, it means to squish into a mold. So the world is is trying to say, no, this is how you're supposed to be. You know, we see the Word. It says, this is how you're supposed to be. And the world's saying, no. And it tries to squish us into its mold. So we face that temptation externally. And then, of course, we face the third temptation of our flesh. We, We are in this body, and it craves things that do not please God. And so we face that temptation and that challenge as well. During Jesus' millennial kingdom, he is going to remove two of those sources. There will be no enemy forces to tempt anyone. Doesn't that sound great? There'll be none of that, no external temptation from uh, the enemy forces. But secondly, there will be no, the world will not be able to tempt us either. There will be no factions out there that have their plan, you know, or their alternate idea. There's going to be like no wall where they kick everybody out who, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't like Jesus, you know, where you go live on the other side of the wall, you know, you know, like you see it, you know, movies and stuff like that, you know, we put the weirdos out there, you know. You're not going to be able to find any worldly ideology, a bastion of it that will tempt you. You're not going to get that stuff, you know, pumped into your eyes and your ears and your heart. But even though millions will be born into a world where the only temptation they experience is from their flesh, many will still want to rebel. Many will want to fulfill the desires of the flesh, even though they've had a thousand years of a perfect society. And Satan's loosing will present those who have never had the ability to successfully act on their desires to rebel against Jesus with the means to finally do so. You know, when Jesus comes back, those who will enter into the millennial kingdom will be only those who trusted Christ as their Savior during the tribulation. Nothing else will go into the kingdom. If if you take the mark of the beast, you're an unbeliever, and you survive the tribulation, you don't go into the millennial kingdom there will be no believers who start the millennial unbelievers who will start the millennial millennial kingdom however there will be millions born during those 1000 years who have they don't have they've not had the opportunity to choose otherwise oh they'll have the opportunity to rebel if they want to disobey but the bible says he's going to rule you know with an iron scepter right an iron rod and he will crush anyone who, who seeks to do that. And so, you know, there will, there will be no crime. There will be no war. And any, anytime time somebody starts to do something that's wrong, you know, somebody's going to be right there to boom, nope, not happening. The Bible says in, in the book of Isaiah that, you know, when someone dies at the age of 100, it will be because they're wicked. That's be the only reason, because life will be extended. You know, disease, it's going to be, these are things that are going to be minimized. These are things that are not going to be affecting people anymore. A child will be 100 years old, it says, be considered that way. And so they will not have the opportunity. Satan's loosing will present those who've never had the ability to successfully act on the desires of their flesh, their desire to rebel against Jesus. This will give them the means to finally do so. Now, one of the questions that I am most frequently asked when... when, uh, we read about this or someone's reading this in their own Bible study time and they'll come to me and say, Pastor Will, I'm a little worried about what I read here. Because I, I read about Satan being loosed again, and I'm concerned that, well well I might be tempted by that. I might join in. I might go that way. And you know, I, I get it, I get it one hundred percent, you know. I, I understand completely that concern and that worry because I live in the same thing you live in, this. I live with this flesh. I understand that the the greatest tempter, the greatest traitor is right here. (laughs) That the greatest opponent is right here. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? It's above all things, you know? Think about that. You know, I know I think people have good hearts. That's 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 the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Kids have good hearts. They do not. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sure your kids are great. Mine are wonderful. But they don't have good hearts. I never taught a single one of them to lie, to steal, to hit, any of those things. And they just came out roaring. The most wicked thing is right here with me. And like you, I live with it every day. I understand. You know where the traitor lies. It's not the other person. It's you. And I so I get it. I understand the concern. It's hard for me to fathom a a time when I won't when I won't have to deal with that. So let me put your heart at ease. Because here's how it works. Okay? Paul talked about this. He said, Listen, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. Amen? Great news. Nevertheless, I live. Not so good news. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are currently living in this thing, all right? And, 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 and yes, it's here. Nevertheless, I live. And, and daily, what, what we do is we are seeking and, and our desire is to be conformed to the image of Christ, right? And so... Every day, you know, we are yielding our lives up to Him, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. We are partnering with the Lord. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are yielding ourselves to Him that Jesus might live through us, that the life I live would be a life of faith in the one who loved me and gave Himself for me, that His, his work through me, that He is living the life through me, that I might walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That is our choice that we make every day. It's a choice that we made the day we got saved and it's a choice that we make every day that we're gonna walk with Jesus. We sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, right? So every day we recommit that to the Lord. Multiple times a day we recommit that to the Lord, right? It's what a Christian is, it's what we do. Based on that commitment, the Lord who, you know, we read in the Scripture, it talks about how like he, he, he came along and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's two different words for when he hardened Pharaoh's heart and when Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the word for when God hardens his heart, it means to confirm a decision. God does that in a good way too with us. When we say, I've decided to follow Jesus. And that, that is our, 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 our MO that we're saying, I'm walking with the Lord. I want to walk worthy of my calling. He seated me in heavenly places. I want to live like that. Yes, we face the challenge every day, and we recommit it to him every day, but God takes that decision and he undergirds it. And when he, what he promises us is that someday, because he's undergirded that decision based on our faith in him, what he's going to do is he's going to give us a new body. We're, going to not just be, we're not just justified, we're not just being sanctified, but someday we will be glorified and we'll be given a new body that will never, ever have the option to sin. That's not because all of a sudden God takes our free will away. It's because he is confirming the choice we've already made. And so he removes all the opportunity of temptation. This thing here which craves all sorts of things it should not, will shed it and will be clothed upon with immortality, given new bodies that will never, ever experience temptation, never, ever sin. If you are part of the first resurrection, you do not have to worry about being tempted when Satan's loosed because you'll already be in that new body. It cannot affect you. His loosing isn't for you because you've already made your choice. His loosing is for those who have not made that choice yet. And so it says that he goes out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, and then it calls them, gives them a name, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog, of course, we describe them as regions when we went through Ezekiel 38 and 39. Many regions are listed there. Here, however, I don't think it probably means a specific region because we are already told uh, a couple things. First off, we're told, number one, that the whole map is changed when Jesus comes back, right? Right? Islands flee away, in mountains, you know, they, they fall, you know, and, and everything's new, right? It's all different. So we know that's number one. So, borders things will be likely different than they are right now. But secondly, it says here that he goes out to deceive the nations, not just Gog and Magog. So the rabbis would use the phrase Gog and Magog often in their teachings to refer to the enemies of the Messiah. So, I don't think it's referring to the, that region of Russia here. I think, I think John uses Gog and Magog here in light of what Ezekiel 38 39 says, because Ezekiel 38 and 39 gave us the image of all these nations surrounding and coming upon, converging upon Israel to destroy it, and that's the image we get here. It says that they went up, verse 9, on the breadth of the earth, and they... Compass the camp of the saints about. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So it's a similar picture, a similar image. That's probably why he uses that phrase. Maybe there is a region called Gog and Magog in the millennial kingdom, and, and that's who heads it up. I don't know. Uh, we don't get, aren't given enough information on that to say definitively. Now, this camp of the saints, uh, the word camp here usually refers to an army. I don't know who this is because it doesn't tell us. Um, It's just the saints, so we know they're believers. I lean towards these not being us, but those born during the millennium who choose to trust the Lord. Now, what's fascinating about that then is that those who choose to trust the Lord and to hold Him as their king, they make that choice and reject the lies of the enemy, are less than those who receive the lies of the enemy because they're surrounded. Isn't that crazy? This reveals a very sad truth. One God finds necessary to reveal to us. During the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist promises a utopia without God. A perfect world, but without God's way of doing things. A world where I can act however I want. Now, despite the fact that that's an illogical concept... Because, how can it be a perfect world if what I want to do conflicts with what you want to do? That's a problem, right? You know, like people will say when, you know, if, if we as Christians, you know, disagree with, you know, a, a, a choice of how someone wants to live or, or what they say is real or true or whatever, and we say, well, I don't believe that. I think that's false. You know, the Bible says this. So, we, you know, why can't you just let that let, let be? You know, why can't you just let me be what I want to be? You know? Well, there's a problem. You being what you want to be conflicts with what I want to be, right? So how does that work? How, how does that work, you know? What you're, what you're not saying is, you're not saying, you need to let me be what I want to be. What you're saying is, you can't be you. That's what someone's saying when they say that. They're saying, you can't be you. I get to be me, but you don't get to be you. <laughs> that is not love. So despite the illogical concept that the Antichrist promises, there will be those who hear about Christ's victory over the Antichrist. Because certainly, I imagine there'll be history books. It's not like everybody's going to know everything. There'll be people born during this time who didn't live during that. They're going to be taught, right? It says in, in the book of Isaiah, it says they're going to say, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He'll teach us, you know? They're going to be taught these things. But there will be those who will hear about Christ's victory over the Antichrist, and they will think... I don't think what Jesus did is the best solution. I think Jesus' way of doing things is awful. I think the villain, the people, the guy that we're told is the villain, I think he actually had a good idea. And so, despite a world with peace and good health and no crime and God's presence, a large portion of humanity will say, We can do better. We can do better. And that's the same lie that Adam and, Eve bought in, Adam and Eve bought into. It's the same lie that those who follow the Antichrist bought into. And thus, God will prove forever that man's heart is deceitfully wicked. Forever he will prove that. That none are good. That even if we had the perfect environment and, and we were treated wonderfully, that we would still choose the wrong thing. That the cross... Was necessary. And that sin and those who will never turn from it have to be eradicated, have to be dealt with, have to be removed. One of the biggest challenges I find with with particularly I mean, I'm sure all of us at some point struggle a little bit with it because we just don't have a conception of God's holiness but particularly Christians who are not really in the Word or they're not really walking strongly with the Lord, they struggle with the idea of judgment. And they will come to me frequently and say, hey, you know, I, I, just don't, I don't think it's fair. I don't understand it. You know, it, it seems extreme, you know. Well, if, if someone keeps trying to break into your home, what are you going to do? And, and you've offered them mercy over and over and over and over again. At some point, something has to be done to stop them, Right? The Lord is ever merciful, ever gracious. But this proves, even as he gives us everything, that sin and those who will never turn from it have to be dealt with. And So even though they come and they surround the army of the saints, it says there's no battle, there's no war. It says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Swift judgment, rebellion over. And that's it. That's it. Everyone who has ever been born will have had their choice. They will have had their opportunity. So, verse 10, Satan's usefulness is done. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He was thrown into the abyss where he was imprisoned for a thousand years, a temporary prison. The Bible also gives a temporary prison for the unrighteous dead. Um, There are two words that are used for hell in the New Testament. One is Gehenna, or Gehenna, that is the lake of fire that is mentioned here, the eternal abode of the wicked. The other word is the word Hades. You'll see these words used, they'll both be translated hell in the New Testament, but in Greek they're actually different words. And so, you know, when someone dies today, they don't go to the lake of fire. They go to this place, Hades, wherever that is, a place of temporary judgment. But the lake of fire is the eternal abode of the wicked, created not for mankind, but created for the devil and his angels because of their rebellion against God. And here the devil that it was created for, him that deceived them, he is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, and he will never deceive anyone again. They will never, ever be a lie again. You know, the Bible talks about in in Revelation 21 or 22, it talks about without are all those who love and, and believe a lie, right? There'll be no more lies, no more deception, forever eradicated. But notice what it says here. He is cast into this lake of fire and brimstone. We covered that already in Revelation 19, when the, or Revelation, yeah, Revelation 19 when the Antichrist and false prophet were thrown in. But look, they're still here a thousand years later, where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. They've been here for a thousand years. Their, their bodies supernaturally preserved in judgment. It says where they are tormented, the word means to punish by physical torture. They are physically tortured. It says day and night, which means there's no respite, no break, you don't clock out. Forever and ever. The phrase forever and ever, it's the strongest phrase of eternity in Scripture into the always of the forever. Into the always of the forever. You don't get any longer than that. It just keeps going. Hell is not temporary, nor does it result in annihilation. It is eternal torture. Now, I understand that that is unfathomable to our comprehension. And I also understand that as we even attempt, I know most of us don't want to, but if we attempt to understand it, it's terrifying. That's because it's meant to be. That's because it's meant to be. Paul the Apostle said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This is why we don't look over at our neighbor as he's mowing his yard, and we think to ourselves, mm, you know, maybe that guy needs Jesus. We don't think that because, well, someday, you know, he might just go poof. Or someday, you know, he might have to, you know, take a pickaxe to some rocks. You know, and then, you know, check out and go to his bed at night. We look over there because... We know if they don't repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, it's an eternity. An eternity of torture. I remember I got saved in 1988, July of 1988, and um, I, I really didn't have a, I wasn't going to a good Bible teaching church, and I wasn't really connected in church, and so I really didn't grow very much. And so my first two years of my Christian life were very carnal. I, I, you know, I would have fit the description that Paul says, you are carnal when he talked to the Corinthians. You know, I, I remember when my wife found out I was a Christian, she was shocked. We, were, we met each other in homeroom in high school. I got saved in eighth grade, and, and we were walking down, walking down to class, and uh, I was humming bullfrogs and butterflies. And, uh, and she looked over at me, and she's like, how do you know that song? because I wasn't a strong believer at that time. She was. And, uh, but I remember we started going to a little tiny church in like Mary, a good Bible teaching church, and I really started to grow. We had a lot of older men in the church started to mentor me and disciple me and pour into me, and I really started to grow. And, and, and I, I know that some people, you know, because I'm up here, and people are like, oh, man, Will, he's, you know, he's, he's outgoing, whatever. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm introvert by nature. You know, like if I go to the store, it's not to say hi to anybody. It's to get what I'm at the store for you know? And if I, if I see you, you know, down the aisle and I don't know you, I'm likely going down a different aisle until you're gone, you know? Because I'm just, I'm not me. I'm not, me. That's, I'm not a, a people person in that sense by my nature that, that I, I look to engage, you know? I, I don't. And so, you know, I would, I'm growing in Christ, and I know I need to share my faith, and, but I don't want to because that's just not me, you know? That's not me. It's not me to engage someone just out of the blue, and I remember how the Lord really grabbed hold of my heart. It was in my sophomore, I think it was junior year. And I remember being in Spanish class. And, you know, and if you've been in an environment like that, if you're a student, you know, and you're in a classroom full of, you know, people, you don't know what their faith is. You know, you know you're in a work environment. You don't know what they believe, you know. And it's, it's, it can be daunting. It can be intimidating. You're like, well, how do I start? Like, you know, like, do I just, you know, stand up in my cubicle and be like, yo. Jesus, and then, like, put my head back down. I mean, how do you how do you start this? Like, how do you engage, you know? You know, you know as, as the, you know, the guys, you know, getting coffee in front of you or whatever, you know, do you slip up a Bible verse? Like, you know, how do, how do you do this? And, and I know for some of you, you're like, well, you just say hi, you know, and yeah, I don't just say hi. <laughs> That's not in my, like, you know, how modus operandus. What are we doing today? You know, just say hi. It's not even on the list, you know? But I remember what changed me is I, w- I would go into the classroom and, and I, would just, I would just see fire. I would just see fire, them on fire. And that overcame, you know, whatever I am and my weakness and I was like, God, I got to say something, you know, and I pray, you know, God, give me an opportunity, give me somebody to share with. And the Lord did, man, he did. He gave lots of opportunities to share my faith and lots of opportunities to tell people about Jesus. We need to understand this. We need to understand the terror of the Lord. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I read something on, on Facebook the other day. I, I'm not on there very much, but I was flipping through. and Because I think it was somebody's birthday, and I just wanted to say happy birthday to him. And, and, uh, and, uh, and as I was going through, I, a friend of mine, a pastor that taught me at the Bible college, he had said something you know, and somebody responded with a lot of vitriol, a believer, or claiming to be a believer, and, you know, said, I'm going to do this, and, and, you know, I'm going to keep doing it, you know, and I'm going to let God be my judge. And I just thought to myself, ooh, no, 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 no. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No, I do not want God to be my judge. I want, I want mercy. I fall upon the judge's bench and ask for mercy. If you have not repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, this is your destiny. We're going to talk about it in a minute when we get to the great white throne, Judgment. You say, well, it's just these three guys. Yes, it is. And if it was just these three guys, we might not be concerned about the lake of fire. But they're going to be joined, joined shortly after Satan's final doom by every other unbeliever. And so if you have not repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, please turn around. Please repent. Please recognize, change your mind. That's what repent means. That it's not okay the direction you're going. That you're not a good person. That you need to turn from your sins and put your faith in the one who loved you so much that he died on the cross for you. Because that is the only way to escape, as we'll see in a moment. verse 11, And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. We see here in verse 11, a great white throne appears after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Every rebel that, that will ever be has been dealt with. The only one who are left alive are the righteous now. And so in that moment a great white throne appears, and him that sat on it comes with it. And it mentions from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. The word from is a marker of disassociation. It, it implies a rupture from a former association. What's the former association? Well it mentions the heaven and the earth. Before his presence, his person, they fled away. The word fled away means to disappear quickly. First Corinthians 15, you can read it again. We read it in our scripture reading. But it talks about how when, when Jesus has defeated every foe, it says he's going to take the kingdom and he's going to present it to the Father. Father, I gave them a thousand years of perfection, perfect rule. I gave them everything they could have ever wanted. I defeated every enemy that's ever stood up. There is No one left to make a choice. And to present the kingdom to the Father. And the Father will appear with this great white throne after Jesus presents everything that he did to the Father. And after that happens, 2 Peter 3, verse 10 occurs. People get really confused when the day of the Lord comes. Everyone wants to pin it down to one specific end times event. The day of the Lord describes everything from the the time that Israel's reborn all the way through to eternity. That's the day of the Lord because it's His day. It's when His stuff starts happening. So it's His time. It's His season. You don't have to chunk it out to any specific period of time because we see that phrase used with multiple references to the time of Israel's rebirth all the way to the time of the eternal state. And so in 2 Peter 3.10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This is this disassociation. God who created this world, He created this universe, and everything He made, He said, it was good. The problem is, is it became corrupted. And so it will flee away. The Bible says that he holds all things together by the word of his power. Every atom, every, every, every molecule, everything is held together by the word of his power, and he's just going to let go, and it's going to erupt, poof, in fervent heat. One massive, you know, atomic division, you know, explosion, and it's all just gone. Jesus predicted this in Matthew 13, 31 when he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, before God creates the new heaven and the new earth, another group is summoned into his presence. Verse 12 And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The unrighteous dead now. They're the only dead left. Every, every believer at this point has been resurrected. So the only dead left are the unrighteous dead. So they did not participate in the first resurrection, and now they are brought before the throne of God. And notice it says small and great. It doesn't matter how important or how insignificant you were in this life, it will give you no help in this Supreme Court. The court of all courts, it will give you no help there. It doesn't matter what you accomplished, what you built, what you achieved. Whether you're insignificant or whether you were great, you will stand before the Lord here if you were not a believer. And it says the books were opened. And the books, these are the books that contain all of our deeds. The Bible says that judgment is according to truth. It mentions later on in the verse that when they are raised up, it says they will be judged out of, out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. All their works will be laid out. The Bible says that you know um, uh, everything is naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Nothing is hidden from God. And The Bible says in Romans three ten, there is none good, no, not one. And so, as these books are opened and the evidence is presented to each of these unbelievers, it will be very clear to them and to everyone else that they are not good, that they are not righteous, and that they deserve to be judged. And yet God doesn't stop there. Notice, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life, it contains the names of all of those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus, right? That's why we don't have to worry. That book, the book of the works, it's not for us, (laughs) you know? Those books, they're like, we're not going to get to heaven, and that book will never be opened for us. We don't need it because we're in the other book, right? We're in the other book. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life so, but these books will be opened as well. These two pieces of evidence become the basis upon which all the unrighteous are judged. Now, John chapter 5, verses 25 to 30, you can read it on your own time. It says, there will be a day when the Son of Man's voice calls those who are in the graves out of their graves, and everyone will stand before the Lord, and they will be judged for their sin. So, Jesus is the one who will be the judge of these things. Yes, the Father comes. He's there on the white, great white throne, but it will be Jesus is the one who opens the books and evaluates every individual there who's an unbeliever. Can you imagine what it will be like to look at those fiery eyes, to know that you were loved, to know that everything was provided for you, but you chose to reject it? Can you imagine what it would be like to look at all your dead works and see how ugly they were? To realize just how prideful it was to trust in yourself? How foolish it was? Please, if you're an unbeliever today, you say, I'm not a follower of Christ. Or, or maybe you're just, you just say, well, I grew up in the church, but I've never repented of my sins and trusted Christ as my Savior. Listen, when you get to heaven, all right, like if an unbeliever gets to heaven, if an unbeliever gets before this great white throne judgment, all right, and they come out, and, and 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 they say, yeah, yeah, but I was, you know, I, I was, you know, totally into like the yin and the yang thing. There's not going to be a little yin yang single that comes out, you know, next to the great white throne and pulses a few times. This one's mine. He's mine, you know. And then you go off into your little realm with the yin and yang. No, there's going to be no little Buddha guy that comes out and says, yeah, but he was faithful and he walked the eightfold path as best he could. He, he comes into my realm. No, there's no other realm. There's no other God. There's no other way. There's no one else speaking on your behalf. There's only one thing that speaks for you. It's the blood of Christ. And if you don't come to it, that the only other blood that speaks is the blood of Abel that we're all guilty of. And it speaks from vengeance, judgment. Please, don't be here for this experience. There is a blessing in the first resurrection, but the second resurrection is horrifying. For look at what it says in verse 13. After the books are opened, the unrighteous souls stand there before God. The image that we're given now is awful. It says, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them. This is the second resurrection, nothing like the first resurrection where you get a a new body that will never know pain, never know sin, never any of these things. What you're going to see is the place of all corpses will belch out these corpses. It will return the corpses back from the grave, back from the sea, back to those unrighteous souls. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. They are now given their old bodies back, but now with an eternal capacity to suffer, just like the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verse 14. And before they're cast in, it says, The last enemy is defeated. Death and hell, death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, a death that you can never return from, a death that lasts for eternity. Death and the grave here are personified as enemies that need to be judged. And for that, I am very glad. Listen, I'm glad I'm going to be out of a job. There will be no funerals in eternity. There will be no memorials, no graves, and no death. Doesn't that sound good? However, this great news for the believer is bad news for the unbeliever. Verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, there is no room for soul sleeping, second chances, or annihilation in these verses. None. Those ideas are born, these doctrines are born out of our distaste for the concept of eternal suffering, not biblical teaching And I get it. It's hard to comprehend. But that doesn't mean we reject it. We let it motivate us to share the gospel. Now, when this final judgment is complete, God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 1 of chapter 21 belongs with chapter 20, and it brings us to the end of the kingdom age. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Passed away means ceased to exist. They've gone away. This word new means freshly made, not renovated or repaired, but something different, something better. And what's better about it? Well, it tells us there's no more sea. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why is there no more sea? What's God got against the sea? Why is this a thing that it mentions to us that there's no more sea? You know, I'm, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not a big water guy. I'll tell you what I love. I, when we went on a cruise once many years ago, that was wonderful. So I think I'd like being out on the sea. But I'm not a beach guy, per se, you know. Why is no sea a good thing? Why is this a bonus, a benefit here? Well, when we look at the new creation, we see that it's vastly different than the old one. The Scriptures don't explain to us why not having a sea is better. But may I suggest something to you? Both Daniel and John in their apocalyptic visions, they see the sea many times. Daniel in chapter 7, he sees the sea, the turbulent sea, the waters and the weather, you know, all this turbulence around the sea and then rising up out of the sea are those four hideous creatures, right? In the book of Revelation, we see the sea again. This is where the beast, the Antichrist comes up out of the sea. It's almost like there's a sense where the Lord is saying, ain't nobody coming out to cause any more problems. There's no more turbulence, no more sea, nothing. You don't have to worry about what might come up out of the bubbling ooze over there, you know? And doesn't that sound good? That in eternity, you'll never have to wake up in the morning and hear about a bombing or a kidnapping or a pandemic or a death or a bad decision from a leader. Everything will be smooth sailing all the time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, when we read about these things, they're heavy, and they remind us of our responsibility to share our faith, that our hearts need to be broken for the lost because of what they're facing, that that was where we were headed, and the Lord rescued us. Someone pre- presented the gospel to us. But it's also a wonderful time to remember what Jesus did so that we don't have to experience that. It's a good time to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so this morning as the, the band comes up and they're gonna lead us in singing, this is a time to worship him, to declare his worth, to tell him we're thankful, and to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning, and if and if you're here this morning, and you know you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you know, and you got one of these, you know, this is not just something to do. To do, it's well, everybody else is doing it. Don't. What here I, w- I would tell you though is don't just opt out or don't just you know pretend like you're doing it and not doing it or put it in your pocket. What I would tell you to do is this: repent, repent of your sins, and put your faith in Christ. Turn from the way that you're going and turn around. The Lord's calling to you right now. The Bible says that he's calling to you, he's inviting you, and he's saying that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what I would urge you to do is come. Come, repent, give your life to Christ, and then we'll partake together. So Lord, we thank you for this time now and we're gonna remember you. And Lord, we want to, to say thank you. We want to recommit ourselves, even as we talked about earlier, that, that idea of Christ in us, you know, the hope of glory, Christ living through us. Lord, we, as, even as we think of what you did for us, we understand it. It was not just so heaven, you know, was in the future. It's not just so, you know, we'd escape these things, but it's that we might experience your work in our lives now, your resurrection life living through us. And so as we sing now and then as we Lord, remember what you did for us and celebrate it. We would say to you, Lord, we, we want more of you. We want to surrender more of us to you, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, yielding our members, our body parts as instruments to be used for righteousness. Live through us, we pray, Jesus. Amen.